Welcome to this message from Shofar Christian Church. May you experience God's grace as you listen to this word being preached. So sorry guys, but this feels really good. <laughs> to take off my mask for a moment. I'll try not to preach for too long, so you can also take off your masks later. Um, wow, what a great time of worship. Really enjoyed it. Thanks guys. Thanks to the worship team. It's amazing, like the, the um, intimate presence of God and just how He loves us being, you know, worshiping Him, loves our voices as I shared from uh, Song of Solomon 2. Amazing. Um, my name's Andrew Boltman. I'm in church here. I've been around for a while. I know Henny and Rochelle from back in the days, even in Stellenbosch. Feels like a lifetime ago when we were young and pretty, yeah? <laughs> You're still pretty, Rochelle. Um, and I live in Joburg. I work in the coffee industry. Uh, we import coffee from all around the world and sell it to local roasters, coffee roasters. And uh, I really enjoy my job. Get to drink coffee all day. Different coffee, pretty much every day, a different coffee. So I'm very lucky with that. I'm going to uh, just dive in and speak a bit about the goodness of God. Huge topic. I feel way out of my depth, and I'm probably just going to scratch the surface. Uh, can we just bring the house volume a little bit down, guys? The guys are busy there. Just the house volume a little bit down. Okay. So Stephen Cornier preached last week. I, I would suggest you go and have a listen to, to his sermon. He preached on waiting or faith in the waiting. And uh, this morning we're going to speak about faith in the goodness of God. I feel kind of like if you have both of these together, then the waiting will be easier. If you believe and know that God is good. And, uh, and I also want to touch a little bit on that phrase and the word good and what it actually means. Because I think a lot of the times, um, you'll know that, that thing that uh, sometimes gets used in church, that saying, uh, God is good all the time, all the time, God is good. It's a great saying. But I think so many sayings and so many wonderful things in church tradition becomes tradition, becomes uh, void of its meaning. And, uh, and I love to think, <laughs> think deeply about things, uh, try and understand what is the purpose? What's the reason behind something? Or what's the meaning behind something? I think it's very important. And I think we also just get so much out of it. We get so much uh, depth in growing in God and, and growing in the knowledge of Him. So this morning we're going to touch a bit, and I say touch a bit because it's really a big topic, on the goodness of God. So I want to start just with uh, Merriam-Webster dictionary definition of the word good. It's amazing if you just type it in and look for it. There's so many. There's like a whole long list of the meanings of the word good. But two that I want to focus on is uh, one of the meanings or definitions is conforming to a standard. And another one is of favorable character and or tendency. So I don't know about you guys, but in my Christian life, and I think we should be like this, but many times I've thought, who are you, God? No, but who really are you? <laughs> you, know, you? You're kind of going through, sometimes going through the motions of reading scripture, praying, 
engaging with God. Yes, he saved you and you're on a journey with him. But there's some pivotal moments, I think, in your life where you really want to know him. You really want to know, but really, who are you? Show me, show me really who you are. And, um, and I think it's a good thing because we know that, uh, that we live in a world of many traditions and, uh, and lots of those traditions and even cultures, but more traditions and religions get followed just blindly without wanting really to know God. Uh, they just get followed because it's a tra- tradition handed down by family uh, and you do, you do it. And unfortunately, Christianity is not exempt from that. Uh, lots of people do follow into Christianity, funnily enough, with uh, great benefits. Uh, <laughs> a lot of people fall into Christianity and then get saved later. Um, I think of John Wesley as a famous example of a preacher, a pastor, who felt like he actually only got saved later. So he was a preacher and he went out and he preached and he was in the USA um, and he came back to, the, to England where he was from, and then he only got saved. Uh, so it's amazing how culture is so strong, and traditions are so strong, and it can just kind of carry us and, and move us along. Um, but there comes a point where you actually want to know God. Who are you, God? And a lot of our patriarchs of the faith in the Old Testament actually had very similar experiences. Um, Abraham, for example had a tradition that he was in before God called him out and, uh, and into the desert and into a relationship with himself. Moses, we're going to touch on this morning, very interesting story because he kind of grew up with two cultures, two religions actually in a way. Grew up in a Jewish culture because he was raised actually by his own mom um, who was very devious and uh, managed to get him a great place in the, in the cast or in the um, palace of the Pharaoh and to grow up as the son of Pharaoh. But he grew up in these two cultures. And uh, if we just fast forward in, in his story a bit, yeah, Moses, I uh, actually want to just see where I am, my notes. So Moses, obviously his story, he murdered someone and he tried to cover it up, an Egyptian. And he was already kind of becoming aware of, you know, he obviously had quite a tension inside himself because he had two cultures, two, two people groups, two alliances, allegiances. And, um, and he ran away. He realized he's going to get into big trouble. And he ran away. He found another group of people, uh, the priest of Midian and his family, and he settled there and married uh, the priest's wife, Jethro's wife, oh, Jethro's daughter, not wife. Um, and, and then in all of this, he became a, a shepherd and he was out in the mountains. He had this incredible experience with God and the burning bush, uh, which I think is just so strange. Um, imagine, imagine such an experience, God calling you. And I just think that that's like that pivotal point where there was all this tradition and culture but there's God. He's calling him. And I, I believe, and I'm increasingly seeing it like this, but that God initiates relationship with us. And I think if you think back to your own relationship with God and even how it started, uh, it's amazing to go back to that and just see, wow, God, you called me. You called me. And um, just jumping forward a bit, uh, 
through the whole story of Egypt and the plagues, the stand against Pharaoh, uh, the long walk to freedom, uh, the, sea, uh, the Red Sea crossing, and the journey through the desert. And now we get to this place where there's a lot happening. The Israel's camping at the foot of the mountain of God, as they call it, or Mount Horeb, which was later tr- or renamed Mount Sinai. And they're standing there, and God, is, uh, God and Moses are obviously engaging with each other. But there's this tension, this moment of tension. And there's been many of them, and there still will be in, in our world, where, <laughs> where God is saying to Moses, listen, I am faithful, so I will lead you and show you where the promised land is. But I'm not going with you because I'm scared of what I'm going to do to you. <laughs> That's exactly what it says. Because he's holy. And, uh, and they were being stubborn, as we can be. And, uh, and Moses takes this gap and obviously had a great relationship with God. And he takes this gap and he just says to God, like pulls his heartstrings, says, but if I found favor, if we found favor, we are your people. We, we want you to go with us. We don't want to go into the promised land if it's not with you, without, if it's without you. And in that moment, I think Moses sees another opportunity. And he asks a, a question that I think is, it stands out in the Bible. Where he asks God in uh, Exodus 33 verse 18, Please, show me your glory. And I just think, wow, what an amazing question. I mean, firstly, will God do it? <laughs> you know? But that's, his, that's where he's at. He's like, who are you? You know, you, lo- you love us so much. You've, you've freed your people out of this 400-year slavery. You've pulled us out of, out of Egypt through the Red Sea. We've seen miracles, provision, manna, food. Who are you? And I just love this. I haven't seen it like this before. and I, Maybe you haven't seen it like this before either. But it says... In verse 19, and he said, God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim my name, the Lord, and I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious and I'll show mercy on who I'll show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I pass by. And then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back because my face shall not be seen. And I just thought like, firstly, please show me your glory. And he responds with, I will make my goodness pass before you. It's amazing how there's this, it's like synonymous here. He's saying, you want to see my glory? I'll show you my goodness. It's incredible. The, the depth of this is, is quite a lot. And I, you're going to have to go home and just study this a bit and look into it. But I'll just scratch the surface for you and uh, tickle your taste buds. All is goodness. I will make all my goodness pass before you. All is goodness. Ask for his glory, his essence, and he replies that all his goodness will pass before Moses. But what makes God good? And what does good even mean here in this scripture? 
Well, let's first read about the actual happening. So God said this is going to happen, and then it actually happened. In uh, Exodus 34, verse 5 to 8, it says, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with them there, stood with him there, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. That's also amazing. It says the Lord passed before him. When he said, all my goodness will pass before you. So he is his goodness. He is goodness. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children. So the third and fourth generation and a fitting response, it says, and Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and worshipped. I can't imagine that, <laughs> that experience, but it must have been absolutely glorious. This passage summarizes God's goodness in two very specific ways. It kind of speaks a bit about his justice and his holiness. And it also speaks about his grace and his mercy. speaks about good and evil and we we often think in life and in the world what is good and evil what is this and who decides what good and e- what is good and what is evil who decides it well ultimately god is the universal standard for goodness you might say that that makes the bar incredibly high but think about it it actually pulls up the bar and makes goodness even better than what we could ever make it in this world. Wayne Grudem, a great guy that you can look into also, um, in his systematic theology, he defines God good, God's goodness as such. He says, The goodness of God means that God is the final standard of good, and that all that God is and does is worthy of approval. And that's, that is a lot to, to get your head around. But just think about it. God defines good. He defines it. And good is what he is, who he is, and what he does is worthy of approval. That's how you measure it. The problem is that we as humans always want to make the standard of good just low enough so that we will qualify. <laughs> we say things like, Hitler he was evil. Or Stalin, definitely also a bad guy. So we make sure to create parameters that suit us and make us feel okay. It's what we do. If you think back just to the Garden of Eden, uh, the word good is used in two very pivotal places. Uh, it's used after every creation day. God says it's, it is very good or it's good. And then on the seventh, sixth day, he says it is very good. He calls creation good. But then it also shows itself in another place where God already spoken to them about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and that they must not eat from this tree, the fruit. But yet we did. And something strange happens from that day. Something changed in our perception of goodness. The gist of it is that suddenly we started, deci- we de- we started deciding what good means. 
we started deciding what evil means. We lowered the standard of good. Think of this scripture. In Proverbs 20 verse 6, it says that every man will proclaim his own goodness. So we lower the bar to our level, and this is actually the beginning of humanism as a philosophy. It's pretty much a view of a high view of man versus, or, and a low view of God versus a high view of God and a low view of man. But what's amazing about God is that he's good. And through the history of man, we can see that he does not stop being good. Even if we are here in this world, his goodness filters through and comes through and meets us where we are. Listen to these scriptures. In James 1 verse 17, it says, Whatever is good and perfect is a gift coming down to us from our Father, who created all the lights in the heavens, and he never changes, and he never casts a shifting shadow. In Psalm 145, it says, The Lord is good to everyone. He showers compassion on all his creation. It's amazing. Blows my mind. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of the term common good or common grace. In theology, it's a, it's a whole category of how God is good to all creation. God is good to all people. His children and those who don't know him. He's, there's so much good that he does in the world. And, well, let's just read this, this definition and we'll come back to James 1. Uh, Sam Storms is also a great guy you can look into, but he wrote an article on the Gospel Coalition website uh, on common grace or the goodness of God in common grace. And he defines common grace as such. He says, a bit wordy, but try and follow. As an expression of the goodness of God, common grace is every favor falling short of salvation, which is under, which this undeserving and sin-cursed world enjoys at the hand of God. This includes the delay of wrath, the mitigation of our sin natures, natural events that lead to prosperity, and all the gifts that humans use and enjoy naturally. So God's goodness is actually seen in the world. It's seen in believers and unbelievers alike in so many ways. I think uh, the one thing that I saw in this article, and go and read it, it's a great article, um, that I was, my mind was just blown by it. He said that God is actually holding back evil. If he didn't hold back evil, the world would look very different. And I think things would have been finished a long time ago. But he's got purposes. So he holds back evil. He holds back his own wrath. He holds back many things. He gives us gifts. He gives us the means and the abilities to, to, to gather good things, to enjoy life. Uh, he's, there's this common grace in the world. That's undeserving. But God gives it because he's good. So we've got to just touch on the area of suffering. Um, it's a big argument against the existence of God. But it's also a question that even we ask, you know, how can God be good and allow suffering in the world? Um, it's a question that gets asked a lot. 
just from my personal life, I mean, we've all got our own stories, but one story and area that, that I experienced a lot of suffering in when I was younger was I grew up in a house with an alcoholic father, and uh, from when I remember he was an alcoholic, um, wasn't great. Uh, he wasn't physically abusive, but he was absent, and there was a lot of emotional almost abuse in a way. Um, and that was kind of, it was obviously very tough for us and our family. But what was amazing is uh, in the late 1990s, he stopped drinking altogether. He actually just went completely dry. And, uh, and at the same time, really got to know God and started a life of just reading through the Word. Uh, I'm super challenged by him, and uh, he would read the Word year in and year out. He'd have little, he'd write it down, stick it up all over his cupboards, and, you know, he really related with God. God called him, and he, got, he engaged with God. Um, unfortunately, he passed away last year in July. Uh, he had a, an ailment that, like, for three years, he was suffering from. The doctors couldn't get to the bottom of it. It was either between his heart or his lungs, and the two specialists were just pointing him backwards and forwards between the two the whole time. Um, and then last year, he was admitted to hospital, and yeah, he was there for a week, and they kind of thought he'd be released. He wasn't in great health. He was on oxygen, off oxygen. Um, didn't have COVID. Can you believe it? tested three times in the time in the, that he was in the hospital, uh, but he passed away one Thursday night in July last year. What is amazing, though, from, well, one story I'll share from him, too, is uh, the last time I saw him uh, was November of the year before. I was planning to go visit in April, and obviously my ticket was, what's it, re, uh, given back to me because uh, COVID happened. And I couldn't get to Cape Town. And so the last time I saw him, he'd come out of hospital after an operation. And he had been on a lot of medication, and amongst other things like anxiety medication. Uh, and he was weaned off all of that for the, for the time in the hospital. And it was actually quite strange. My mom told me beforehand, listen, he's, he's a bit strange. And he's, like, he's very emotional. <laughs> and, and he's just a bit raw almost in a way. And uh, so we sat and chatted, and it was an incredible conversation where he just said, like, in hospital, he had the most amazing experience in his life. Um, a nurse came to him and asked him to pray for her. And, I mean, he's not a pastor or anything. He's just a person who really loves God. Um, and he said it was the most amazing experience of his life. He actually prayed for this lady. And... Uh, but, I mean, in this moment, I still can see his face. Like, he was super frail. Like, he'd lost a lot of weight. Uh, was not in a great, great condition. Um, and then he said something to me which was, like, st stuck with me, is that he just said, he just feels like he's literally at this stage just under Jesus. Like, that's all that's left. <laughs> so his body's breaking down. And, uh, but he's under Jesus. And it's so simple like that and so profound and powerful. And you could see, like, he was just so full, like, of God. It was amazing. Um, since he passed, the strangest thing has happened to me. I'm a person who loves history, loves kind of context, understanding history, wh why we're here today. But also, like probably lots of us, uh, was tripped up and just kept bound a lot by stuff in the past in my life, uh, stuff that affected me. And something that happened when my dad passed away 
was suddenly there was just this release and my whole life kind of from facing backwards just turned around and faced forwards and I just find myself just facing forward now and uh, I I have this strange like interest maybe it's not that strange but in the end time or not end times but like what will the end be like and heaven and where we're going to and and that's where it also just feeds into this understanding of God. Who are you, God? It's inevitable for me now. Maybe some of you don't feel it or experience it like that, but it feels inevitable. We are going to eternity. We are going to die one day. One of my very good friend's dads passed away a few months ago. Didn't expect it. He was healthy, played squash. He was still working. He passed away five days from covid um, from going to hospital to passing. And it's inevitable. We're going. We're going there. Who are we going to? Don't we want to know who he is? Don't we want to know what it's going to be like? We're going to God. He's calling us, and he's a good God. I just think if we don't have an e- eternal view, then suffering can cripple you. Suffering can break you down and we're going to read two scriptures now about despair, but despair is not a place we want to be. So eternal view and a view of who God really is actually brings context and actually brings everything we need to get through anything, every, anything evil and bad in this world. I'm going to skip a little bit. I'll just read a little quote from C.S. Lewis in The Problem of Pain. He wrote two books on pain. He wrote a book called um, A Grief Observed. Uh, When his wife passed away, he was married for a short while, but they really loved each other, and he was a bachelor for a long time before he got married, and then uh, married and was only married for a few years, and his wife had cancer, and she passed away. And uh, he wrote a book called A Grief Observed, very honest book, go and read it, uh, about his experience of grief, his experience after his wife passed away and grappling with God also and the goodness of God in the midst of it. And then after that, he wrote a book called The Problem of Pain. And uh, listen to this. (laughs) I almost want to say scripture, but it's just a quote. The problem of reconciling human suffering with the existence of a God who loves is only insoluble so long as we attach a trivial meaning of the word love and look on things as if man were the center of them. That's very powerful. Another quote later in the book, he says, By the goodness of God, we mean nowadays almost exclusively that his lovingness, and in this way we might be right, and by love in this context most of us mean kindness, the desire to see others then the self-happy, not happy in this way or that, but just happy. What would, really satis- what would really satisfy us would be a God who said, of anything we happen to like doing, what does it matter so long as they are contented? We want, in fact, not so much a father in heaven as a grandfather in heaven. A senile benevolence who, as they say, like to see young people enjoying themselves, and whose plan for the universe was simply that it might be truly said at the end of each day, a good time 
was had by all. <laughs> Don't we want God to be like that? <laughs> I want to just, I, this is such a powerful illustration, but I, I came across this article, um, and it's extracts from a book that a, a lady called Rebecca M- McLaughlin, I think it's on the slides, McLaughlin. Uh, no, it's, I don't think it's actually on the slides. You can ask me for it afterwards. She wrote a book called Confronting Christianity uh, from a Christian perspective, but the hardest questions that are posed against Christianity. And she shared uh, in this kind of section on how could a loving God allow so much suffering, uh, this story. So she speaks about the story of Lazarus. She says, when Jesus comes to Lazarus's tomb in John 11, he's deeply moved again. And he commands that the stone be taken away. But Martha cautions, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. But Jesus insists, and he prays, and then he shouts, Lazarus, come out, and the man who has died comes out. And she says, I often tell my daughters the story. Unlike most children in most history, they have had very little experience with death so far. That's something to think about. There was a time in history where death was much more prevalent. But I want them to know that one day, when their bodies have rotted and their lives have been forgotten, Jesus will call them out of their graves not to float as dismembered souls in the sky, but to walk in resurrected bodies on the earth. Powerful. The one who called the stars into being will call them from death to life. Jesus' power over death is absolute. I believe it is the only hope we will face in our inevitable end. But what fascinates me about the story is how little focus there is on Lazarus himself. Rather, the narrative draws our gaze to profound questions. Why, if Jesus planned to heal Lazarus, did he not just do it in the first place? Why did he let Lazarus die and leave Mary and Martha mourning for days? Why not tell Martha what he was planning to do and right away? In this strange stretching of the story, we get a glimpse of the whole biblical framework of suffering. For suffering. The space between Lazarus' death And Jesus calling him out of the tomb is the space in which Martha sees Jesus for who he really is, her very life. How many times can we think back on stories in our own lives? Stories of suffering or hard times of ailments and stuff. And look back on what God did in that time. He he moves. Two scriptures that are just incredible and very sobering. Psalm 27 verse 13 says, I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we, were, we are perplexed but not driven to despair. We're often perplexed in this world and it's okay to be perplexed. It's okay not to understand. It's okay to feel uncomfortable. But the goodness of God keeps us from ultimate despair. If you're experiencing despair, run to God. There's no other place. There's no other place to go to get comfort, joy, context, peace. There's also scriptures that speak about 
Um, in Genesis 50, it says, As for you, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result. And that very well-known scripture in Romans 8 verse 28 that says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. It's amazing how God causes all things to work together, everything to work together for the good of those who love God. He takes anything and he makes it work for the good. I love the fact that God is sovereign. I believe it with all my heart. I don't understand it. I'm trying to learn more about it and just grasp it because he is sovereign. Again, it's him. It's who he is. It's very evident in the world. And so again, like, let's dig in. Let's really get to know him. Who are you, God? Who are you? He is sovereign, but he's also good. He's a good God. He knows what he's doing. He's in control. The biggest scheme of things, he's playing out a script for his own great glory. Now, the thing about his own great glory is that it ends up being for our greater good also. We get drawn along in this story, in this narrative that God's busy with, this huge narrative. We have no idea. But we get pulled along and just experience him, experience his goodness, his love. Just listen to a few of these scriptures. Taste and see that the Lord is good. You know this one. And the joys of those who take refuge in him. The Lord is good, a strong refuge when trouble, trouble comes. How's that? The Lord is good, a strong refuge when trouble comes. He's close to those who trust in him. The Lord is good. It's my alarm. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. Just ties into Stefan's sermon from last week. He's good to those who wait for him, the person who seeks him. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. That's a line that's used so much in the Old Testament and in the Psalms. I can just think it was something that you almost... Um, I'm not a... Henny asked me the other day, would I ever get a tattoo? And uh, I said, I don't think so. Because my dad had a tattoo on his arm uh, of the initials of one of his girlfriends from school. <laughs> and, and it was still there, obviously, till the end. <laughs> but... Uh, so, give thanks to the Lord for He is good. His faithful love endures forever. It's almost something that you tattoo on yourself because it's so permanent and uh, it never changes. And it's just think about like culture and tradition and how powerful that is if you just say that of your own life, of your family. You just say it and because it's true. The reality is for us, and I think why this is a bit of scratching the surface is that we sometimes only understand the goodness of God by what God does. That's, that's it's true of us. Eh? And I think that we have to be honest with ourselves and we have to ask ourselves, but do we believe that he is good? That he is good? And are we okay with that? And will we hold on to him even when he doesn't do good or when it seems like he's not doing good to us? Will we hold on to the fact that he is good he is. All these scriptures. You are good, and what you do is good. Teach me your decrees. Psalm 119. And then we'll just end with this. Is God's goodness obviously breaks into the world in the most powerful way in salvation. 
I think often of that, the joy of our salvation. I think it's in the Psalms somewhere. But we should come back to our salvation, thinking about our initial salvation often and the miracle that it was. I keep thinking it's the biggest miracle in the world. It's a bigger miracle than healing, I think, and other stuff. Salvation, someone getting saved out of death to life. God breathing life into someone and resurrecting them into spiritual life. And salvation is not just an initial, but it's now we're being saved and we will be, as I read earlier, that scripture where Jesus says your redemption is drawing near. We will be saved ultimately also. Salvation is massive. Think of that scripture in Ezekiel 33, Ezekiel, Exodus 33 and 34, and how it speaks, it uses some imagery. And I just want to end with a scripture that says um, in John 1 verse, verse 14 and 16 to 18, it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. That's goodness. Grace and truth. For from his fullness we have all received. If you remember, it said, my goodness will pass before you. And the fullness, there's the fullness of God there. Of my fullness you have all received grace upon grace. So his goodness is just being poured out into us through salvation. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. But he, Jesus, has made him known. It's incredible. He is ultimately the rock in which God puts us when his glory passes by. Think of that scripture. Exodus 33, it says that there's a rock, there's a cleft in the rock, and he'll hide Moses in the cleft of the rock when his glory passes by. Jesus is our rock. We are hidden in Jesus as the glory of God passes by. Jesus becomes almost like a filter for the glory of God. His skin and bones that he put on during his time here on earth was a filter. This holy God, this just God, and this good God. Jesus suffered the worst of all humanity. He suffered beyond what we could understand, especially carrying the weight of the sin of the world. He bled goodness. In turn, he saved the lives and is saving the lives of many, and he invites us into an everlasting story of getting to know this good God. And I invite you guys with me, let's get to know this good God. He is good. Let's stand together. So faith is believing in God as he reveals himself to be and not as we would want him to be. I believe faith becomes even more real and even more powerful and even more lasting when we believe that God is great, or God is good, and know that God is good. I'm going to end with this scripture, and then we'll just pray. In Hebrews 12, verse 2, I love the amplified version of it. It says, looking away from all that will distract to Jesus, who is the leader and the source of our faith, giving the first incentive for our belief, and is also the finisher He will bring it to maturity and perfection. 
He, for the joy of obtaining the prize that was set before him, endured the cross, despising and ignoring its shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, Lord, we just thank you this morning for your great goodness, Lord. We thank you for your goodness, Lord. Father, we want to even start by thanking you for common grace in this world. Lord, and we as Christians, as your people, want to pray for our brothers and sisters and colleagues and and people that we know that don't know you yet, God. We want to ask you, open eyes, God, and save the people around us, God. We ask you for salvation, God. We ask you, come and extend your salvation, God, to many more, God, in our midst. In Jesus' name, and help us to even be free to speak about this good God. Free to speak about this God who saves us. And God, I pray this morning for us as a church, God, that we would be a church that has a high view of God and a low view of man. A high view of God. Lord, I can't think of a better thing, God. And God, we just pray and we thank you also for your goodness and salvation, Lord. Thank you for saving us, God. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for calling us out of that grave like Lazarus. You called us out of the grave, Lord. We came running to you, God. You were the first voice we heard. Lord, I thank you for that this morning. And I pray, God, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, who isn't saved, and who doesn't know that you are good, I pray, Lord, that you'd speak to hearts this morning, Lord, and, and come and perform that wonderful miracle, Lord, of salvation. Come and do it. Draw them in, God. Call their names. You do it, and, and we ask you to do it. In Jesus' name. And Thanks for listening to this message from Shofar Joburg. May the grace you receive produce God's greatest glory and your greatest good. For more information and sermons, please visit our website at www.shofar.joburg.com